Is value investing debt? With the rise of Bitcoin, Tesla, Dogecoin, and GameStop, many people on the internet are arguing that value investing is, and I quote, stupid, and that you need to be on a watch out for the next big thing consistently in order to make a bunch of money. But what do real value investors who are sitting on their portfolios while chilling in Switzerland and not caring about social media comments have to say? Is value investing really dead? And if not, what is the best way to go about it in this climate? My guest today is Guy Spire, a Zurich-based investor and the author of The Education of a Value Investor. Since 1997, he has managed Aquamarine's privately offered investment funds. Guy previously worked as an investment banker in New York and as a management consultant in London and Paris. He has an MBA from the Harvard Business School, class of 1993, and holds a first-class degree in politics, philosophy, and economics from from Oxford University. Guy currently lives in Switzerland with his wife and their three children. In this episode of the Invest Diva movement, you're basically going to sit down with somebody who doesn't need your money, is someone who's literally had lunch with Warren Buffett and is creating generational wealth for his family. So can you agree that he's someone you definitely need to pay close attention to, right? Towards the end of this video, he's going to reveal how he remains consistent with his strategy and how you can do it too. For those of you who are new here, my name is Kiana Danielle. I'm a four-time author and the founder of the Invest Diva movement. Where we're on a mission to help one million moms taking control of their financial future and to make your money work for you. So please hit that like button here to help us with the YouTube algorithm and share it with people who could benefit from taking control of their financial future so together we can make this huge impact. Now let's go and learn from Guy Spire. Welcome, Guy Spire. Oh my gosh, I am super excited to see you, meet you after so many years. You probably don't even remember, but you are the person who rescued me from day trading. You found me on LinkedIn and you're like, Kiana, stop with your tango dance around Forex trading and Forex currency pairs. You're doing it wrong. You have a lot of potential. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, you sent me this book, The Education of a Value Investor. And this completely changed my life. This completely changed the way that I look into investing and how I manage my emotions and how I go into an investment with my strategy. So I cannot be more thankful for having you on the show today. Good, Kiana, it's such a pleasure to be here. And I, I feel proud that I had an impact on you. So um, you're a smart lady and I could see all those years ago that you were going places. I just didn't know where you were going. And now it seems like our paths have come way closer together. So that's just wonderful. Well, not as close because you're right now in Switzerland, just chilling, not caring about a thing. Your wealth is growing. It's getting inherited, passed on by generations to generations. So I'm far behind, but my goal is for me and for our viewers to get to where you are at some point, or maybe our kids to get to where you are at some point. So Guy, is value investing dead? Because <laughs> exactly. everybody's talking about growth stocks and tech stocks and Bitcoin and all these things. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's quite incredible, especially considering that we're, we're talking on a day that 
Elon Musk announced that he's he's bought $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin for Tesla and that Tesla will accept payments in Bitcoin, sending market cap of Bitcoin up by many billions and sending up the market cap of Tesla by many billions as well. <laughs> Very smart move on his end. Very smart. Um, Meanwhile, he was out there hyping up Dogecoin. So don't get me started up on that. And just to be clear, that whole world has passed me by. So I don't own any Tesla. I don't own any Bitcoin. I don't, I actually do as of the weekend, own just a tiny bit of Bitcoin cash because somebody sent me a personal payment in Bitcoin cash. But I also don't own the vast majority of kind of growth stocks or new stocks that have done so extraordinarily well. What is value investing? Value investing is buying something whose value you can understand. It's investing intelligently. And I think that there will always be a space for investing intelligently. And there'll always be a time there will be times the market will go through cycles and we're definitely in one right now where the people who think about the world in that careful, slow way are going to look increasingly stupid and are going to feel increasingly humiliated. And um, it's just part of the way people like me want to approach the world that we, we accept that that's going to happen and it's not a problem for us for that to happen. Um, but no, so value investing is not dead. Intelligent investing is not dead. And I would just, to just go into it in a little bit more detail, um, intelligent investing, and I would say value investing is looking to the asset to deliver a return to you. So if I buy a farm, I can think about what crops I will grow on that farm and what I might be able to sell them for. And it is those crops being sold from the farm that will deliver my return. Or if I buy a property to rent out, I can look at the rental income that I can get from that property. But the key about those kinds of assets is that they have an intrinsic value. They generate cash flows. And then there, there is greater fool investing or maybe what might call growth investing where you're not really looking at what you can get out of the asset. You're looking at what somebody else might pay you for it down the road. And that is what I would call either a momentum investing or many different words for it. But if I buy Bitcoin, then I, I don't know how I can earn a return on the asset because, because there's nothing, you can't grow crops on Bitcoin. You can't rent Bitcoin out and have somebody live in it. So you're, uh, the only way you can make a return on that is by selling it to somebody else. Similarly, just to name a company out of thin air that uh, I looked at for a half a millisecond is a company called Snowflake. Mm -hmm. And you know, I just looked to see that Snowflake was trading at more than 100 times revenues. But if you, so if, you're, if I'm somebody who wants to make a return, if I look at Snowflake as a kind of a farm, you know, how much crops can I grow out of the snowflake asset? So yeah, snowflake will grow and somewhere they might have earnings, but I'm paying a lot, an awful lot. It would have to grow enormously for, for me to know that I can earn a good return on my investment. So that will never be dead. It's just that the market goes through periods and we're clearly going through a period right now where people seem to forget that. And people who haven't forgotten it are made to look increasingly stupid. And uh, that's okay. 
So people like me are looking very, very stupid and might look even more stupid over the next few, until this period ends. We don't know when it'll be, but I can promise you this, Kiana, it will come to an end. The period of everybody being interested and hyped up over- Yeah, that is not, that never lasts. There's no time in history, no time in history that that has ever lasted forever. And every time that it happens, people think it will last forever but it won't. And actually, what we can say is, and I, I'm thinking a lot, and, and your listeners should go and listen to a guy called Jim O'Shaughnessy. He has a lot of wise words on this, and Jeremy Grantham of uh, GMO. So I've heard people talk about the market climbing a wall of worry. So for as long as there's bad news out there, for as long as people are uh, concerned about something, you could expect the market to continue to rise. But when people are euphoric, euphoria never lasts. And that is, in a certain sense, might be the best sign that we're towards the end of the bubble or to went towards the end of this euphoric period. Because what, what else can happen after people are euphoric? Nothing else can happen other than them getting into a worse mood again. And everywhere I look, I see euphoria. I don't see at least where the market is concerned. But so value investing is not dead. So how do you select your assets? What exactly is a value asset? So in a, in a euphoric market, it becomes increasingly difficult. So what do, you, what do you do? Because I felt that the market was highly valued 10 years ago. So do you just sit out of the market for 10 years? That would be really, really hard. Or do you buy into overvalued assets because you just can't stand the fact that everybody else seems to be making money? And so... What I do is I kind of divide the portfolio into um, sort of long-term compounders, companies that I'm willing to hold through any market cycle because I feel convinced enough that they will continue to become more and more valuable through time. And there's a company that I enjoy talking about and my Indian friend Monish Pabrai makes fun of me for talking about it, but it's just such a great poster boy for it is this Swiss company called Nestle. So Nestle has about half of its sales in the United States. They are, you know, one of the most famous brands is Nescafe, Nespresso, and they have a whole bunch of other brands and they are basic to human life. And they define themselves as a company that wants to be trusted for the quality of the products that they put into, um, you know, housewives and mothers' uh, homes and their tables. And so that's the kind of business that, you know, you can build intergenerational wealth around that business. So I have in the core of my portfolio, I have a number of businesses that are those kinds of businesses that are, you know, I'm not really too worried about what their valuation is. I'm not really too worried about what their sales did this year or last year or what their earnings are or were. I'm looking at what will they be doing in 50 years time or 20 years time. How do you figure that out? Because it's very easy to say, of course, Nestle is a household name. Everybody knows it. But what if there is going to be a better, how, how do you actually know what they're going to be doing in 50 years? So you, you have to start somewhere and you have to start figuring out what is kind of home territory for you. And I figured out that so long as there are humans on the planet, they'll be consuming Nestle products. And so I decided that was a kind of a home base for me, but I also looked at every single other, every single, as many other consumer goods products 
companies as I could to see what their culture was and to see how they approached it. And, you know, it's not, it's not hard. I mean, you know, I, I would enjoy, I, I haven't done it recently, but you go into anybody's home and you look to see what products are in, you know, I would enjoy if I was in your home to look at, to see what products you buy and to see what products your husband would get upset about if you don't buy that product, you know, and if you buy a different product, he says, no, don't buy this one, buy that one. I like the other one more. So you can really develop a kind of a sense of trust that that product is going to be demanded. I don't know if that's kind of an answer to your question. No, it absolutely is because I normally tell my students, look into your credit card and see what you've been buying every single month. And there's an American guy who lived, lives in Boston, Peter Lynch, who used to do this at Fidelity and he wrote a couple of great books. Uh, Beating the Street was one and he basically talks about investing based on your own personal experience. But here's the, here's the key or a key, Kiana, is that when I invest in something, I buy it assuming that God is watching me. And I assume that if I don't buy it, it will go up by 100% the day after I stop looking at it, just to make me angry for not buying it. But God is watching me. And if I buy it, it will go down by 50% instantly just because I bought it. And it's a good assumption. It's not true, obviously, but it's a good assumption to have. And I want to know, so, so that the psychology around I want to know that if it goes down by 50% or more, I'm still going to be okay to hold it. That Okay, yeah. first here, side note, you guys, you probably have seen my TikTok talking about this exact phrase. I stole it from Guy Spire's book and I turned it into a TikTok. This is, the ex this is our mantra, Guy. Thank you so much for bringing it up. Is Are you going to be okay if you buy this asset and if it drops 50% tomorrow? Exactly. Or are you going to be more upset if you don't buy it today and it goes higher by 50% tomorrow? So I'll, I'll tell you a story, a true story about me and a famous brand called McDonald's. So uh, I, I can't remember exactly when it was that I bought it, but the first thing it did is go down because obviously God was watching me. And so I, what I did was I started going to McDonald's a lot to, um, to, to, to see that people were still eating McDonald's. It made me feel good about the, you know, the, the value of the stock in my portfolio was declining, but I could see lots of people happily eating McDonald's. And it, it, that, so that was a good thing. I could go and I could see, touch and feel uh, what it, the company that I'd bought. Now it wasn't so good for my weight because I was eating more and more Happy Meals. And while I was a happy person eating Happy Meals, my weight was increasing. And, uh, but it really helped me. So the point about buying into businesses that you can know, see, feel, understand is that it will help me, it'll help you psychologically. It helped me psychologically to hold on to a company that feels like it's a losing position, so to speak. Because if you buy, if I buy some biotech satellite technology company, the stock price goes down by 50%. And I don't know, maybe their technology doesn't work. You know, maybe all my due diligence conversations were wrong, but the ability to tangibly feel and see what is going on can really help with one's psychology. In the case of McDonald's, one of the biggest mistakes that I made is that I sold it after I got three times my money or four times my money. But if I would have held on to it, I'd be at like 20 times my money at this point. So once you find one of those things, you just want to hold it for a very long time. And actually- So I have a question here for you. Actually, I have two questions. One is, it looks like you are very interested in food. 
because obviously that is a human nature. Like everybody needs to eat food. Is that the majority of your portfolio holdings? Um, uh, I, you know, off the top of my head, no, it's not the majority. And, um, but, but, but what's happened is that Nestle has compounded at a nice rate, but there are other companies that have compounded at a far higher rate. So, uh, and then I have a, I, I try not to rebalance the portfolio. So six or seven years ago, I don't remember the exact date, I got distributed to me the shares of Ferrari and those shares have gone up very rapidly, far more rapidly than Nestle. So now that is a far bigger position than I believe my Nestle position is. So you get these, um, uh, so you get these imbalances that take place, but in a certain way, I'm also, when I kind of, manage the portfolio, I want to know if the world goes to hell in a handbasket. So I feel a lot more confident that people will continue to be to be buying Nestle's products than that they'll be buying Ferraris. It turns out the Ferraris are pretty durable buy by the people who buy them. But, but at the end of the day, that's grown far faster. And I can tell you, if I'd have been smart enough to have owned Amazon 20 years ago, I'd like to believe that knowing what I know now, I would have not sold any shares of Amazon. Thank you for sharing this because a lot of people feel like they're missing out. And you're here, you're just chilling in Switzerland and you know that your money is growing somewhere in some place that you feel safe and patient with. But at the same time, you're able to balance the emotion, the fear of missing out on something. And you sold your Amazon. Like I've made mistakes of selling something that I really liked early too. So how do you combat that emotion? Because the emotion can really, you you can get really angry and then go do something really stupid with that emotion. So how do you balance that? Think of this. I think this might be helpful is Warren Buffett has been patiently building his wealth for the majority of his lifetime. And then um, Elon Musk comes along and blasts past him in terms of wealth in the last five years. And if you're going to be patiently building wealth over a long period of time, you need to expect that every year that you're doing that, there are going to be people who are going to be, it's going to feel like every year there's somebody blasting past you. And that's just the name of the game. And that's kind of like, it's almost like it's designed to put you off your game and you just have to understand it and accept it. That And and so every year, this year it'll be, you know, fang stocks. Next year, it'll be Bitcoin. The following year, it'll be something else. There'll always be somebody who's doing extraordinarily well. But it doesn't, it, it shouldn't impact you. And I think that if you, if you work on building a successful life and building balance in your life, then that's going to be of less concern. So I think the answer partly is to stop focusing on it. And in a certain way, you know, when I first send you that book, I don't know, you were maybe in Tokyo, you just moved to Manhattan. Now you tell me that you have a husband and you have your parents living with you and you have uh, at least one child. And so you've got all that to work with, you know? So, so in a certain way, building, a, building the other parts of your life maybe is the best way to help you. I think that what's not known about Warren Buffett is that he has enormous amounts of joy in the relationships that he builds with, uh, with, with people inside his family, inside his group of friends, uh, and inside the businesses that Berkshire Hathaway owns. So uh, the answer is not to keep focusing on the fact that you didn't buy Amazon or that you sold Amazon, but to build a rich life, to actually work to build it. 
another thing to do, by the way, is to build a rich life around the company that you own. So if you own Nestle, go have some fun, go down to the supermarket, see who's buying what, talk to the person stocking their shelves, find out how your Nestle products are doing. So I know that if you own, if you're a shareholder of Nestle, which has got a huge market cap, what is an individual shareholder going to do? But on some level, it does make a difference. So, but the answer is outside of the stocks. I'll just give you one story that I've told a few times that I just love is that uh, Roberto Gozuato was the CEO of Coca-Cola for the longest time. And he came from a family business out of Cuba and he goes a distilling business, I believe. And he goes to his father and he says that he's going to accept this management training job at Coca-Cola and that he's sorry that he's not going to join the family business. And his father says, look, uh, Roberto, I'll give you my blessing to do that. But on one condition that you first buy some shares of Coca-Cola out of your own money and that you always, no matter what you're, you, you always think like an owner, not like an employee. And I think that, you know, you know, it's, the minute you start thinking like an owner, stop worrying about whether the share price of Amazon has gone up. Start thinking like an owner of Nestle, you know, and start thinking about whether you like owning the business for the next 10 years, a bit like the owner of a farm. You don't get there by focusing on the thought itself. You get there by focusing your thought on other more productive thoughts, if you like. That is very helpful because um, the greed is the other side of investment and investing and I mean, owning a business or anything when it comes to money. The funny thing that you mentioned about Warren Buffett is that he actually values relationships. Whereas I don't want to name names, but we know a lot of billionaires who haven't been as successful in their relationships, whereas they have been very, very successful with their business and money. So uh, maybe that was their goal and maybe that is what they, what gives them joy. So becoming intentional with why you're investing, why you need the money for, uh, I feel like will give you a really huge amount of um, satisfaction, what you're making and stops you from comparing yourself to others. Cause that's where really the problem I feel like arises. And, and just so you know, I mean, I'm not some Zen guy. I mean, it affects me. Uh, I have in my email inbox emails from other managers who performed far better than I did in 2020. And it's certainly this year is extremely hard for me to write my letter because I'm walking around feeling like a total, not a total idiot, but, but wondering, am I doing the right thing? So if your community members of the audience are feeling that way, don't think that I'm not feeling that way, but maybe I just have a little bit more uh, experience of how to deal with those feelings. Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing it because this shows like somebody you used to work on Wall Street, you've been on the ups and downs, you know, you've had lunch with Warren Buffett, like yeah. you've been there. And then for you to feel that way, uh, I sometimes obviously feel that way, but I never think like the big guys are feeling that way, but you definitely are. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people who feel like they've been missing out or they didn't. Yeah jump on the Dogecoin to the moon or the Bitcoin to the moon or GameStop to the moon train. A lot of people feel like they missed out and people on the internet are making me feel that way too. Like in the comments, if I say something like that, like, I don't like the fact that people are buying on hype. You have to go see my comment section section on YouTube. Yeah. Oh, this, but, this lady is angry because she just didn't jump on Dogecoin. She's just, she's a hater. And these are the things that people say and they make will make you feel like you made the mistake 
but as long as your goal is is actually peace of mind. <laughs> yeah. So I'll I'll share a, f- a few things with you that that brings up. When you buy something that's gone up, and you know I didn't own any GameStop. You know, wasn't short it, wasn't long it. But when you when that happens to you, when you have owned Dogecoin, I understand it's gone up a lot. That kind of gets the animal juices flowing inside you, and so of course the people who own Dogecoin. Are being louder, and they don't even realize they they they're talking a little bit more, they're boasting a little more, they feel more like they want to show up. Like the investment managers who had bad returns, they either don't write a letter or they don't distribute to as many people. So there's a natural bias towards the people who've done well recently, talking about it a lot, and that kind of makes you feel that that's. The only thing that's going on, and it's not. So I learned that one of the best things I can do with my Twitter feed is simply mute people who have a toxic influence, and it's just wonderful. And I don't know why. I, it was this guy David Perel and Matt Kobach who, in a in a YouTube conversation, they basically I realized that I had permission to mute people, and so I think that another way to approach this is, you know, don't give. Those feelings and thoughts, the opportunity to grow and faster, and that means like, if I have somebody who wants to call me up and boast about what they own that went up, I mean, I'm certainly want to be polite to them and say that's fantastic, congratulations, well done, but I'm not going to seek out that relationship because that is in a certain way a toxic relationship. It doesn't breed peace of mind, and I try really hard to develop relationships with people who themselves are trying to live in a calm place. Uh, people who don't want to talk the price of a crypto coin or talk about the price of a business, and who want to look at underlying uh, processes, who want to analyze the nuts and bolts of what is going on, that is interesting and fun. Uh, and and you know, literally, that doesn't mean that I call that the person up who. So there's the classic experience of the person who gives you a stock tip. And they say, "Hey, you should buy this. I know something is going to go up." And then three days later, it does go up. And then they call you up and say, "Did you buy? Did you buy? Oh, you idiot! You didn't buy." Yeah. And my so my reaction to that is not to yell and scream at them, but just to make sure that I take a few more days to answer their email next time, and to be a little quicker to answer the email of somebody who sends me some really interesting analysis. Because you kind of want to create that environment, and by the way, that's one of the best benefits from going to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting is that you develop that environment around you, and that's one of the best benefits of being a member of an investment club, because you kind of again you create that community that's going to help you to think straight. It's you know not that not that investing should be like meditation, but I know that there'll be many people who listen to this who've meditated. And why is it that when you go into a room where other people are meditating, it's easier to meditate? So get yourself amongst a crowd of people who are doing the same thing. It's very hard to meditate if somebody's trying to play rock guitar and the drums. And you know, if 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 investing carefully, slowly, patiently is like meditating, and buying and selling Dogecoin and talking about it is like playing the drums. You know, just it's fine. Playing the drums is great. <laughs> Just don't don't go and inhabit that room with them all the time. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Thanks.、So. You kind of in an unintentionally promoted my investment group over here. You guys, if you want to have a Zen wealth method, method, come and join us in the accelerator. It's not that by doing those things, I'm not not being greedy. It's just it's the right kind of greedy. It's long term greedy. 
So rather than try and get worried about, did I buy Dogecoin or did I buy Amazon or did I buy GameStop? Think about what can I do that is definitely gonna create enormous amounts of wealth for me, for me in 10 years time, rather than worry what I need to buy today that will go up tomorrow. So it's still greedy in a certain way. It's just that as Warren Buffett would say, long-term greedy, it's a better kind of greed. That was basically just uh, value investing. And thank you so much for actually um, finishing that thought because it's a very important message because people are going to like, oh my God, 10 years, I don't have that kind of time. And for me, the answer has been, um, I have a business that generates me that short income. And then I put the money that I'm creating through my business into my value investments and I just let it be. I forget about it because exactly. I don't want to be emotional about those, but I do want to be emotional about my business. And I do want to bring in my passion and everything that I have in the business. And that has kind of been my Zen wealth circle or circle of wealth. I don't know what, what, what I should call it, <laughs> but that is, to me, that has been the definition of value investing. And I would love to know what your circle of wealth is like. I would like to know um, what your strategy is for 2021. And, and I would like to know also your uh, management system. You talked about how you manage your portfolio. You talked about compounding. So those are, those are some of the keywords that you threw in. And I would love to dive into those in the next section and the next Investiva Movement uh, segment with you. So you guys, this was Guy's Fire talking about value investing. Value investing is not dead, is a little bit less exciting right now. It might even sound like boring, but that literally is the definition of value investing. So if you want to become a value investor, or if you're interested in at least attributing a portion of your portfolio to value investments, uh, then I hope that this was a benefit to you. If you like this video, give it a thumbs up, share it with any of your friends who are looking into investing and have heard about value investing, don't know what it really means. It will uh, help with the YouTube algorithm for us. And um, if you have any questions, ask it down below. We are going to ask it in the next YouTube video with Guy Spire. Thank you so much, everybody. And thank you, Guy, for joining. I ask all of my guests to uh, make a silly face <laughs> on a count of three. Okay, that was fast. Very good one too. Okay, thank you. <laughs> You're not that boring after all.